So our next presentation has to do with advocacy and the title of it is Framing Advocacy for Accessible Prescription Labeling. Um, the Advocacy Committee and Government Affairs Committees have been working together for the past several months on <clears throat> um, figuring out the best way to approach making uh, prescription labeling more accessible for blind and visually impaired people. And uh, as, as we uh, worked together to do that, lots of ideas came to the fore. And the primary person that's played the biggest role in all of it has been Judy Brown. Judy Brown is a nurse that all of you have heard from already today. And I'm going to let her introduce this session. So Judy. Yeah, my, my former panelist link didn't work. Well, oh, all right. All right, so there we go. Um, so as Sherry said, this has been a joint effort between the Governmental Affairs Committee and the Advocacy Committee. And what we decided to do was reach out to a Washington State group called the Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board um, to do what's called rulemaking. Currently in Washington State, there's no law or rule that requires uh, pharmacists and pharmacies to offer any accessible labeling. That includes large print, talking labels, braille, or even different languages. There's nothing in our um, rule book. Uh, yes, the ADA does cover it, but the way the ADA works, many times uh, they, it, it defaults to the states to go ahead and do the enforcement and do rulemaking. So I decided to go ahead and just reach out to the um, Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board because we found that some pharmacies do offer large labels, but even within the same chain, sometimes one group, and I am going to throw them under the bus, Costco is the prime example. Uh, Costco at one store says they offer large print labels and the one right beside me has no idea what I'm talking about. So there's inconsistency amongst the chains. Um, there are also other chains in the area that do offer talking labels and do even offer braille, but that's not consistent throughout the entire state for other smaller pharmacies. So by going to the Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board, um, who is responsible for a number of different things, including safe communication uh, between pharmacies and patients, we thought maybe we could get some rulemaking to start to get some standardization within the group. And we found, we know that safety is directly uh, compromised whenever you cannot read a label in either your own native language or you just can't see it, if you have a reading impairment such as dyslexia, there's a number of reasons and a number of different populations that would be affected by making uh, rules that make labels more accessible to essentially everybody. Um, with that in mind, um, they, the Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board had their regular meeting this month on the 21st, then on the 22nd, they had an opportunity for public commentary. Uh, I unfortunately was not able to log on to that, but I am gonna do a shout out to Marcy Carpenter of NFB Washington. She was able to log on to the public commentary and she was actually uh, very helpful in pushing the Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board forward in deciding to go ahead and agree to rulemaking. We're waiting for the formal 
statement from the Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board as far as how they want to proceed, and we want to help them make this decision. So with that, we're going to have to consider doing coalition building amongst a number of stakeholders in the state of Washington. And I believe that we can do that. I believe that we can also, it's going to take a while, but I believe that we can also um, make make the Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board and the state of Washington in general understand that this is such a wide topic that, again, it affects not only people who are visually impaired, but people who um, have reading disabilities for whatever reason, that people who do not uh, speak or read English as their native tongue. That suddenly widens this to an enormous group of people within the state of Washington. And besides, how many people do we know like talking devices? Certainly, I can think of a lot of people who love to have their medications uh, talk to them as well. So I think we need to push forward with this. So with that in mind, we did reach out to an expert on coalition building for advocacy. And Sherry, I'm going to send this over to you so you can introduce our guest speaker. Sure. So I'm really excited to uh, introduce our guest speaker today who did a recording for us because this time didn't work for him. But about a month ago, um, some of you on the WCB list may have seen an article in the uh, New York Times written by Ari Neman, and it was called, What If Disability Rights Were for Everyone? And I had the idea, I think brilliant idea, to reach out to him to see if he would talk to us a little bit about his ideas about that subject, disability rights pertaining to everyone. And I did reach out to him and he said, yes, he would be very pleased to do that for us. So at this time, we're going to hear from Ari Neman and, um, and then we'll have some discussion afterward. Thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to speak to you today, um, not just because I'm honored by your invitation or because I appreciate the good work that you do, though both of those things are also true, but because what the Washington Council of the Blind represents, a group of disabled people working together to advance a collective vision of a more inclusive future, is something that I believe very strongly in and that will be the focus of my comments today. Uh, my name is Ari Naaman. I presently serve as a senior research associate at the Harvard Law School Project on Disability and as a visiting scholar at the Lorry Institute for Disability Policy at Brandeis University. Prior to that, I co-founded an advocacy organization called the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network and ran it from 2006 to 2016. I also served as one of President Obama's appointees to the National Council on Disability from 2010 to 2015. Um, in those capacities, I had the privilege of working very closely with the American Council of the Blind and many other organizations run by and for people with disabilities. I came to believe in the importance of a broader disability rights coalition that stretched beyond any single diagnostic category. As someone running a self-advocacy organization, an organization run by and for a group of disabled people ourselves, in my case, autistic people, I also understood the importance of disability identity, and I still do, 
the work that disabled run organizations do is not just about changing policy. It's about speaking out on behalf of a distinct community and identity. I think that's something that is very familiar um, uh, to all of you here. Some of you may remember four years ago in fall 2017, when disability activists with ADAPT played a crucial role in derailing efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act by staging dramatic protests against cuts to Medicaid across the country. These protests focused on the impact that Medicaid cuts would have on access to home and community-based services, which keep many people with disabilities in their homes and out of nursing homes and institutions. Uh, as they were being arrested outside Mitch McConnell's office, uh, protesters with ADAPT chanted the words, I'd rather go to jail than die in a nursing home. And no cuts to Medicaid save our liberty. For the purpose of this discussion, I want to focus in on that word, our, in the phrase, our liberty. Who is the us that protesters were invoking? They were not simply speaking as Americans, invoking the broad importance of the Medicaid program, or even the value of home care services across society. They saw themselves as part of a particular minority, a particular community of disabled people who have faced a history of oppression and segregation from a society that fails to make available the resources to meet their needs and often relegates them to the, the harms and injustice of institutional segregation instead. In short, disabled protesters saw themselves as part of an oppressed minority group, making claims on a larger majority society. That's not a new idea. In fact, disability activists have invoked this minority group framing for a very long time. In the 1970s, disability activists from a wide variety of groups started to come together to make common cause around a few key principles, inclusion in the community, respect for autonomy and personhood, non-discrimination protections, including the right to receive reasonable accommodations to allow equal access to society at large. These principles and others served as a motivating force for bringing together diverse disability experiences into a common coalition. Uh, disability activism, of course, did not begin in the 1970s, as many of you are very aware. Many disability communities, including the blind community, have a long history of organized political activism dating back well before this point. Um, but this time period was notable because it represented something new, a coalition that reached across traditional diagnostic boundaries, eventually growing to encompass physical and mental disabilities, disabilities present from birth, and those acquired later in life, and many other dimensions of variation. Uh, what this new cross-disability coalition had in common was a shared belief that the disabled represented a discriminated against minority group who should work together to combat oppression from the broader majority society. This, this minority group model disability activism uh, took a lot of inspiration 
from the successes, uh, at that time quite recent successes, of uh, the civil rights movement. Um, and, and they were not shy in invoking that in their rhetoric. Um, in 1966, the National Federation of Lions, Jacobus Tenbrook, made the comparison explicit in a seminal law review article that shaped the disability movement's future direction. Quote, as with the black man, so with the blind, as with the Puerto Rican, so with the post-polio, as with the Indian, so with the indigent disabled. These were the words of Jacobus Tenbrook in 1966. And you know, th there's a lot of power in those kinds of analogies. Um, they, they make uh, a, a lot of disability movements objectives immediately understandable to a broader public. Uh, but there's also some peril in them too. Um, you know, in the modern day, some commentators have expressed concern that such framing appropriates the struggle for racial justice. And you know, you can see arguments uh, being made on both sides of this question. Uh, on the one hand, such comparisons might reasonably be seen as especially questionable, given that the disability movement has a history of um, challenges with racial diversity. We haven't always been as diverse a movement as, as we should be. Um, what's more, uh, you know, the disability experience is fundamentally different from the experience of many racial and ethnic minority groups. The, the seminal role that slavery played in the early history of this country and the centrality of racial oppression and much of American history is unique and it deserves to be acknowledged as such. On the other hand, the language of civil rights has been used by many other groups, and it might be said to be part of a, a shared uh, heritage. More importantly, the adoption of a civil rights frame in which disabled people are seen as an oppressed minority in need of solidarity from the broader public is an important tool for convincing an often skeptical public to take disability rights seriously. Too often, people perceive disability rights laws as acts of charity, an optional gift to be revoked when times are tough and there isn't enough to go around. Uh, an example comes to mind. 20 years ago in Alabama versus Garrett, the Supreme Court ruled that people with disabilities had no rights to claim monetary damages from state governments that discriminated against them in employment, rejecting an effort by two disabled employees of the University of Alabama to claim damages after the university refused to accommodate their disabilities. Um, state governments are generally immune from monetary damages from suits by private individuals unless Congress abrogates such immunity in a manner that courts consider to be proportional to the wrongs it seeks to redress. And the court found, Supreme Court found that Congress had intended to strip states of their immunity, but it, it found that doing so was not constitutional because the Supreme Court could not find evidence to, and I quote, identify a pattern of irrational state discrimination in employment against the disabled. The court went on. The 14th Amendment does not require states to make special accommodations for the disabled, so long as their actions towards such individuals are rational. 
they could quite hard-headedly and perhaps hard-heartedly hold the job qualification requirements which do not make allowance for the disabled. What the Supreme Court is doing here is they're presenting disability rights not as a matter of equal protection, guaranteed um, as a matter of, of uh, uh, equal rights under law. Instead, they're portraying it as a matter of charity that good-hearted people engage in. It's, it's a commitment that um, uh, Congress has made, but it is not a part of um, the fundamental guarantees of the Constitution. Discrimination against the disabled in the minds of many of the country's foremost legal minds is rational. It is not a matter of having built infrastructures for only a portion of the population but simply a hard-hearted failure of charity. Now, countless disabled people, including I think many of you, um, who have firsthand experience with the ways in which employers and others in the broader society can approach people with disabilities with irrational, irrational fear and prejudice might beg to differ. But you know, in the face of such thinking, the, the belief that um, discrimination against the disabled is a, is, is a rational rather than a prejudiced response, the necessity of a civil rights approach to disability becomes very clear. Even though disability is not the same as race, it's still deserving of legal protections that carry the force of law and that recognize the injustice that disabled people face and ill-treated by a non-disabled majority. Still, the civil rights approach to disability, the, the, the minority group of approach uh, to disability may not be enough, but, but by itself, the minority group uh, approach may not be sufficiently inclusive for a very different reason. Not every disabled person sees themselves as part of the the disability rights movement has long maintained that the definition of disability should be interpreted broadly, not, not just encompassing obvious disabilities like blindness, mobility impairment, or Down syndrome, but, but also less apparent conditions. Um, the broad scope of disability rights is actually it's a point of pride for most disability activists who fought to defend it. In the early years of the ADA, courts often uh, very narrow because they successfully manage their conditions through medication, prosthetics, or learned behavior. In response, advocates in 2008 convinced Congress to pass the ADA Amendments Act. The law ensured that the ADA's definition of disability was interpreted broadly, covering everything from autism to asthma. Um, these, these broad disability rights protections, they've proved especially important over the last year and a half during COVID-19. People with diabetes, asthma, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions at risk for COVID complications have found themselves benefiting from the ADA and other disability rights protections in ways they never anticipated. Recently, President Biden's Department of Education launched investigations into five states that have prohibited schools from requiring masks. Already a federal district court has blocked Iowa's ban on mask requirements, citing the ADA. 
You know, the legal reasoning here is quite simple. By prohibiting mask mandates, these states may be pushing disabled students who are at greater risk from COVID out of the classroom. Disability rights law has also been used in other non-traditional contexts. In recent years, the ADA has been used to challenge immigration restrictions, police brutality, mass incarceration, and many other social problems, all on the grounds that they disproportionately disadvantage disabled people. Uh, now, by one estimate, nearly half of American adults have a chronic condition that places them at greater risk from COVID. Their medical issues existed before COVID. Many even met technical criteria for ADA protections. But these protections are now more relevant to their lives than ever before. And we're seeing that brought to the courts. Last year, advocates in Alabama sought to secure curbside voting as an accommodation for those at risk from COVID. They made use of the ADA. They litigated all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, regrettably, the court ruled against them. But we're, we're nonetheless witnessing a broad and expansion vision, expansive vision for disability laws capable of helping large parts of the country. This is really important, but it's somewhat at odds with the idea of disability rights protecting a discrete minority group, which understands itself as oppressed by the broader society. Um, many of the disabled people who have benefited from this kind of litigation never thought of themselves as disabled till the moment they sought the protections of disability rights law. Or if they did so, they had no connection to, um, or even awareness of, disability advocacy groups or a political identity around their disability. And this, I think, is a very familiar thing to many of you. Um, most blind people don't know about WCB or ACB or other blind advocacy groups. Um, you know, most autistic people don't know about ASAN. Most disabled people don't know about the disability rights movement. And so this, this presents really a conundrum. Um, disability rights offer a set of tools to help many people who don't think of themselves as part of the movement and more relevantly, don't necessarily even consistently think of themselves as disabled, or if they do, they don't see their disability as ushering themselves into an oppressed minority group. These people, they welcome disability rights protections, but they're ambivalent about disability identity. Instead, they approach disability protections as broad universal protections available to all Americans. And that, that has very different implications um, to the disability rights movement than our history of seeing ourselves as an oppressed minority and an oppressive majority culture. Uh, now, for some people, this, this just reflects a sense of newness to the disability community, or perhaps what some activists call internalized ableism, fear of identifying as disabled due to the stigma attached to it. Um, you know, in talking to some of your leaders, one thing that struck me as very impressive about the Washington Council was the extent to which you include within your ranks both those who are blind from a young age and those who acquire their blindness later in life. And, you know, no doubt those in the latter group require a period of adjustment, not just to deal with the realities of impairment, but also to grow comfortable with self-identification as a blind person. 
other disability groups have similar experiences. Um, autism is a lifelong disability. It's present from birth. But in my work with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, we, we often were contacted by people who were diagnosed later in life and had to adjust to the idea of being part of our community. As you do for new members of your community, we, we help them with that process of adjustment. I think this is one of the most important tasks for any disability organization. And similarly, we're increasingly seeing efforts to try and build new disability identities. We're, we're seeing that in the chronic condition community, the rare disease community, and many, many, many others. The building more communities for disability identity to thrive in makes the broader disability rights movement much stronger. But there's still going to be many people who qualify for disability protections who will never develop a sense of disability identity, and not just because of stigma or internalized ableism. For a lot of disabled people, the disability is only an incidental part of their self-identity. They have needs that should be guaranteed by law, but they don't perceive themselves as oppressed or part of a discrete community. The law and policy victories of the disability rights movement are essential to this group, but the social construct, uh, construct of disability identity or pride is a very poor fit. So that raises, I think, a very difficult question. Can a movement to address discrimination against a particular minority evolve into something larger, a push for rights for all? And what would that evolution mean for the future of disability rights advocacy? You know, movements evolve over time, and it's not just the disability. In the early years of organized labor, unions organized themselves on the basis of crafts with workers performing similar tasks, typically at a very high skill level, each organizing into separate unions. Uh, the carpenters belong to the carpenters union, the pipe fitters to the pipe fitters union, the painters to the painters union, each had its own leadership, each struck its own deals with management, and this was preferred for a long time. It was seen as like the guilds of old, as a way of preserving professional autonomy in each field. But eventually the economy changed and organized labor did too. Uh, with increasing industrialization, it was becoming difficult for each group to negotiate with management alone. And industries like mining, railroads, and others saw large numbers of unskilled workers who were left out of the, the narrow sectoral approach of craft communism. To, to address these realities, a new model of labor soon arose known as industrial unionism. Industrial unions like the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, offered a very different model. They, they presented collective bargaining as a shared inheritance of all workers urging a common front across trades and even industries. The vision of industrial unionism would eventually triumph. Today, the country's largest union is the AFL-CIO, an amalgamation of the Craft Union, the American Federation of Labor, and the Industrial Union, Congress of Industrial Organizations. The, the disability movement has similar origins. Each disability community organized itself at different times and for different purposes in American history. In the 19th century, deaf activists came together to defend sign language. In the 1940s, blind activists began to organize in response to the Social Security Board's um, aggressive push to 
means tests, cash assistance to the blind. People with developmental disabilities and their families came together in the 60s and 70s to undo the terrible legacy of institutionalization left behind by the eugenics movement. People with physical disabilities birthed the independent living movement in the 1970s to try and take control over the services they depended on. And, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, the 1970s began to see these disparate threads start to come together at a broader coalition. Now, each of these communities were different, but each of them organized um, around a collective experience of identity. And they maintained this, this approach um, uh, when they built this broader coalition. But as we talked about the broad scope of disability law, the fact that the ADA covers so many people means that many people who benefit from disability law don't fit within this frame of minority group identity. Um, students with asthma or voters with diabetes, they, they benefit from disability legal protections, but they're typically not going to think of themselves as part of a minority group because of their disability in the same way that many other disability communities do. And, you know, by itself, this isn't the problem. Good advocates really are willing to give up credit to advance the cause. But sustaining disability rights advances in Congress and state legislatures requires us to mobilize um, you know, the fact that few of disability rights as beneficiaries understand themselves as such is a big problem. How do you go about representing and mobilizing a constituency of people that benefit from what you do but don't know you exist? COVID-19, I, I think, has taught us some things here. It's illustrated that disability rights are, are of near universal relevance. Um, and because of that, I think an opportunity is starting to emerge to frame disability advocacy in a language of shared social and economic liberty that universalize the disability movement, presenting disability rights as the broad protections available to all Americans, not just those who self-identify as disabled. Well, what does that mean in practice? Well, some of it we're already seeing. Um, as we speak, Congress is debating President Biden's proposal to dramatically expand home and community-based services funding as part of his Build Back Better package. In proposing this, the president did not frame this new home care funding as addressing the needs of a, a separate minority group, but, but as an investment in care infrastructure that we could all imagine ourselves using someday as all Americans grow older and, and enter the disability community, um, as many do with old age. Now that rhetorical choice carries very different connotations than the usual approach the disability movement takes. It, it asks the public to relate to disability policy, not as something that is done for them, an oppressed minority group separate from the broader population, but as investments in universal rights and benefits that, that all of us could imagine ourselves using one day. Similarly, in talking to some of WCB's leaders, I learned about your work advocating for accessible medication labels. In that advocacy, the co-chair of your advocacy committee mentioned that over 25 million Americans age 65 and older have low vision or are blind. And you know, while the people you're invoking are blind or low vision, many probably see themselves as just dealing with the problems of aging and don't have any sense of blind political identity. 
in invoking them, you're making a universalist case. It's not just the blind minority that forms itself into groups like WCB and ACB. It's not just those people that benefit from accessible medication labeling. It's everyone. We all may have this need. You're muffled. Examples to build on uh, laws like the Family and Medical Leave Act, FMLA, and HIPAA's privacy protections overwhelmingly benefit disabled people. But because they create rights available to all, they are thought of as universal, not targeted protections. Similarly, the Affordable Care Act's prohibition on insurers charging more to those with pre-existing conditions, it represented one of the greatest disability of policy achievements in a generation. Yet few saw it as a gift only for the disabled because proponents successfully sold it to the public as a universal benefit that helped everyone. Whenever a politician even suggests the possibility of returning to the bad old days of pre-existing condition discrimination, that the backlash is swift and broad-based. The broad majority of the public is invested. They feel they have skin in the game. Not every disability policy priority can be recast in such universalist terms. Things like braille literacy, sign language interpreters, or supported employment services could never be replaced by broad benefits spread across the entire population. Relatively few people need these things, and those that do need them need them to be financed with a level of resources far above what others get. In these kinds of cases, the framing of an oppressed minority group is useful. We're not going to leave that behind, not entirely. Even if the disability movement expands beyond identity politics, it won't be able to leave them entirely behind. The prism of identity remains essential for many people whose disability experiences are defined. But the disability rights movement can position many other disability priorities as public goods akin to clean air, privacy rights, things that are available to everyone. Laws like the ADA would still serve as a backstop for the minority that identifies as disabled, but they could also come to be seen as universal protections for a larger public, much like HIPAA or FMLA. So you can kind of imagine the future of the disability rights movement proceeding. One in this traditional disability approach. You're muffled again. In identity, and disability is a minority group. The other in this um, emergent approach of disability really as a universal, disability rights as universal protections that benefit the broader public. And there's a tension here. We have to manage the tension between these universalist and sectoral approaches um, because, of course, we, we have an obligation to make sure that those who are the most marginalized, which tend to be um, people with disabilities um, who, who do see themselves as part of a larger minority group because that aspect of their identity is so relevant to their lives, are not left behind. We have to recognize that the um, universalist and sectoral approach to disability, they each have pros and cons, and, and making a choice between them 
We're going to be making different choices depending on different advocacy issues and different parts of our community. And sometimes we're going to be advancing both of them at the same time. But we also, I would say, have a tremendous opportunity to try and build the disability rights movement that reaches more people, that um, is more sustainable, and that is more powerful by trying to seek a balance between the universalist and the minority group model of disability advocacy. That balance might be hard to come by, but, but I think it's worthwhile. By thinking about these questions, we can continue the important work of building a more inclusive world. This is our mission and our sacred charge. And it's of course up to us to ponder how to fulfill that charge in the most effective fashion possible. I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you. And of course, thank you very much for your continued advocacy work um, to champion the broader disability community. Thank you and uh, have a wonderful conference. Well, we have a sacred charge, Sherry. <laughs> yes, I know I feel more motivated. I hope others do as well. So with that in mind, um, I'd like to have Doreen raise your hand because uh, uh, Doreen was gonna tell us some of the coalition building she's already kind of been doing behind the scenes in regards to accessible labeling. Um, hopefully she's not still taking a nap. Um, <laughs> because we know that we are going to have to bring in other groups and not just other blind groups. One of the groups that I've been thinking about and perhaps because I'm also a member is AARP. Um, they have a large advocacy arm and I think that accessible medication labeling would be the perfect thing to, for them to take on and make public comments about. Uh, other groups um, are also some of the senior citizen groups that are in the area, but this doesn't also just apply just to senior citizen groups. It also applies to, as I said before, people who don't speak English as a native language or have reading impairments. That's where some of the talking scripts can come on in. Is uh, Doreen up yet? I am. I yes, am she is here. Why do we want me? Do you want me to be on camera? Because I can tell that my avatar is there, but um, I, it, either way. It doesn't matter. It okay. doesn't matter. Awesome. It's a, it's a blind presentation. Yes. So, um, so I guess there's a couple things I want to say, and then I want to totally let people tell us their stories. So yeah. coming at this issue from rulemaking is um, a little different probably from legislation because um, we kind of dumped the problem in the pharmacy board's lap and said, hi, um, inaccessible labels cost the healthcare system a lot. They lead to, you know, I just collected a couple of stories because I know some people who are different medical practitioners. And I asked one couple who were retired, just recently retired primary care docs. I said, tell me about a couple of situations. And one of them um, talked about his father has macular degeneration and somehow the pharmacy had changed the size of his blood pressure tablet. So he had to go to the doctor because of dizziness and low blood pressure or dehydration. I forget. And then the other situation the other person shared was a woman who's from Somalia. Um, she speaks English okay, but doesn't really read English on her labels. And 
that is actually a really important segment where um, there's a lot of people working as caregivers whose first language is not English and who maybe have limited literacy. So when we talk about what makes a label accessible, what I want this rule to do is I want this rule to engage with the fact that what's accessible for different persons is gonna be different things. Um, like it might be that for the person who has a caregiver whose first language isn't English, that the most accessible format is some kind of format that will read it in English so that both sides know what's going on. Um, it might be that the transportation is the biggest barrier about accessibility. One of the stories we collected was about somebody who um, went to her local Costco and asked for large print labels. And they said, well, you can have them fine, but you got to come back in three days or five days or something. Um, that is not accessible. Lots of people like getting to the pharmacy once is a big deal. Having to go back to it is you know, a huge barrier to accessibility. So, so there's a couple pieces of this, which is and, and the, also that technology has evolved enough that if there's databases out there of translated language segments that Script Talk can use to read labels in any language, that also means those databases exist. And if, that, if the best form of accessibility is printed label in a language, uh, which it actually is not always, that that's possible. So what I'm wanting the pharmacy board to do it's almost certain that they're gonna study the problem. That was the first thing that um, we sort of looked up is we want them to study the problem. We want them to recognize that it is a, that inaccessible labels contribute to medication errors and medication errors can, can contribute to high costs and bad medical outcomes. Um, <coughs> and like, that specific high costs and bad, med bad medical outcomes lingo is important for some of the audience we're gonna be talking to. It's also a zone where I have work experience. Um, so um, as Judy said, you know, what we've done so far with connecting with other organizations is just through some things I've done um, in King County part of, as part of work by the Independent Living Center here, um, which is called Alliance for People with Disabilities. I think they're soon going to change their name. Um, so some initial out networking there, some networking through the Disability Mobility Project. Um, and like I say, I, don't, I, I think we're going to need to be really on top of our process game about deadlines and when hearings happen and the whole public, what a public hearing means. But I'm pretty committed to engaging in this as a learning process. So what I would like to do, how much time do we have? We have about four minutes. We have about four minutes. Yes. So if we have any questions or fairly, um, we don't really have time to share long stories, but if we have right. questions or brief comments, that would be great. Heather? Am I there? Yes. yes. Okay. No, I just really wanted to say thank you so much for uh, inviting Ari Newman to speak. I shared that article because everything that he has to say is just so right on target. You know, we, we sometimes tend to focus on just our one specific blindness organization, okay. and we have to realize that 
by combining all of our efforts with everybody that it affects, we have a much bigger impact. So thank you. Thank you, Heather. I'd thank forgotten you, you were the person that originally shared the article, but I remember now you had to go back and put it in um, a format that we could all read. So thank yes, you very much very for doing it. that. It was worth yes. it. So yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a great, is, a, is yeah. Billy a great article? It's great to hear I, his. Yeah. Very excited to see him on the program. So thank yeah, you. Thank you. Lynn, Lynn Coral. Mm -hmm. You may unmute Lynn. Hi, um, I know that and this is Lynn. Um, um, one of the things that we did make was when we got our voting uh, access bill passed in 2002 was connect with other groups. And, and it's very important to do that, to see where the connections are, um, independent living centers and other other blind or blindness organizations. And I, I have been reading about the and I have done research on the uh, independence of 2008. And I think it's a good thing but there's a lot of controversy about including, you know, diabetics and diabetics, not so much, but people with asthma. And I think asthma, there's definitely a disability. My son has it. So, you know, I think that, um, I think COVID has given us a, a, an opportunity to include the uh, aspects of COVID like cardiovascular disease, uh, dementia, dementia, issues and stuff like that into the disability rubric and i think it's a good thing i think it's the more that we can include other people in our work and in advocacy and uh connect with other groups is a great thing so that's what i have to say thanks yes thanks lynn. thank you lynn that Anyone is else? all the hands and no ma'am oh wait a minute somebody we have time for one more if there is otherwise we'll wrap up here zandra you may unmute there's the initiator of all this. <laughs> so I just got off the phone to Envision um, because she called me trying to find out what had happened with the meeting at the quality um, pharmacy quality assurance um, commission. And I asked one of the things that we talked we've talked about is the high cost to the pharmacies for um, you know for for offering this service. And so I asked her, and she said they've really come down in price. That a private pharmacy can uh, rent a printer that does the RFID tags that read back um, for two hundred dollars a year, and to put them on the label, it's the the um, each each tag is two dollars uh, per prescription, yeah. so and it's five hundred and fifty dollars for large corporations to just purchase it outright, and then they buy a tube that usually lasts them a couple years of the RFID tags for about ninety dollars. So it's not really the thousands of dollars that we were originally being told. It's come down in price quite a bit. Um, so I think that some pharmacies are, are maybe not aware of that, where she says it does get expensive is when they're trying to interface it with their computer system instead of having a standalone system. So um, I thought that was really interesting because really to have that argument is, you know, with the pharmacies now is not as legitimate as it was a few years ago. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Um, it looks you. like we're at 2.30, so I won't tell yes. you all my horror stories. But <laughs> all right. <laughs> no, Thank I you think... so much, Sandra. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I think for me, the part of the point of the rulemaking process is to say, hi, a lot of technologies changed and yes. it should be possible to do things a lot more cheaply than before. Yes. And not really to tell pharmacies, you must do it this way or this way, but to say, do what's efficient for you. Here's the standards that you, we need you to meet. So. 
Right. That's my hope right. that will come out of this. And then very, very quickly, um, we are not anticipating hear, hearing a formal answer from the Pharmacy Quality Assurance Board until November 7th. That's their legal deadline that they have to give us a formal written answer. So we just like heard things via conversations at this point. Yes, but be on the lookout for more information coming in, <clears throat> more requests from all of us to um, get involved and, and send us your stories and help us uh, reach out to as many people as we can about this. So thank you very much, Judy. Thanks for running the recording. And Doreen, yeah. thank you. Yeah, thank you all. Thank you. All right. Um, so our next um, program was going to be Stop the Bleed, but I understand that that has that couldn't that can't happen because the person had an emergency. <laughs> I guess he's stopping the bleed somewhere. Um, so we, I'm really happy to introduce Julie Harlow, one of our own members, and she is going to speak to us about a new way to look at what stress means. So Julie, are you here? Okay, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, so I got a new, is, is my sound clear? I, I didn't test it prior to you and I apologize. Sounds great, sounds great. I am, I am starting my video because as a hearing impaired person, I would like the video to be there if we have hearing impaired people that do read lips that they're able to read my lips if they need that. So can anybody decide to tell me if I'm in the screen centered, am I good? Yes, yes. Oh, good, okay. perfect. Thank you guys, thank you all for that. Well, I uh, want to first say I, uh, I'm very sorry to Robert who could not be here when I asked to step in. And I do hope that Robert and his emergency that everything comes out in a positive way. So I do would like to, all of us to send out that message to Robert. I did a presentation with the ACB community of events and this particular segment that I thought I would talk about today has been presented already before. So if you've been there, um, I, I recognize some of you guys. So for that, I apologize. It's a repeat, sit back, listen again, take a break. But so let me introduce to you guys who I am. Some of you guys know me, some of you guys don't. Julie Harlow, I've been around. WCB for a little while. And at the OTC, I was introduced to WCB and many of the members that I now am very close to and I'm very happy that they're in my life. I was plagued with cancer a few years back and that changed the course of my life and where I was headed. And so through that challenging, whoops, I'm gonna turn off my jaws. I, give me a second, I apologize. My speech is going and it's a bit distracting. So through that process, I was introduced to some Eastern philosophies and modalities. So I'm certified in Jin Shin Jitsu, which in my own terms, I like to call it acupuncture without needles. And after learning this modality, I started diving into other things. And I went back to school, got my master's from the Maryland University of Integrative Health. 
And <clears throat> I became a nationally board credentialed health and wellness coach, a life coach. I minored in herbalism. And so my schooling was all based on scientific methods. So it's all this Western and Eastern philosophy and blending it together and bringing it together in a way that we all have choices for our health. I was sitting in class one day and I was going through all of the technical stuff about stress and the body. And I was trying to piece it together. What does it mean to me? And so that is what I would like to share with you guys today. So how can I start that? So the autonomic nervous system, all of these, I'm going to introduce us to some terms and I'm going to break it down into clear, basic stuff. It is a very complex topic and we hear different things. And so I'm just gonna present this to where we just get the basics so that we have an understanding on how we can understand our own bodies and maybe change some aspects based on how we look at it. So the autonomic nervous system is a part of our nervous system that we don't control. For example, the beating of our heart, the digestion of our food, the breathing. We breathe without thinking about it. This is all part of that autonomic nervous system. And in that system, it branches out into multiple facets, but we're going to break it down to two. One side is called the parasympathetic nervous system. The parasympathetic, I think of it like this. I'm parasailing on a cloud. If you're afraid of heights, try not to think of it that way, but find a way to think of parasympathetic on a cloud. Your body is relaxed, it's calm, it's doing what it's supposed to do. We then have this other side of the system called the sympathetic system. This system is designed to help us, which is what we always hear, <clears throat> excuse me, which is a fight flight response. And it, visually, they always say, oh, you know, when you see visual pictures of stress, they always show this picture of the deer and a lion, fight or flight. Well, how does that apply to us? Many of my friends, many of the people that I talk to about this situation and myself, I'm not running from anybody. I'm not fighting anybody. I'm just living. I'm just trying to do my daily life. So how am I in this fight flight system? So that's what we're gonna to learn today is these two systems and what it means and what it means to us and our body. So when they show us the deer and the lion, let's sit back for a moment and let me paint you a picture. You got this deer, he wanders away from the herd, he's eating his grass, he wanders over to the brook, he has a little bit of water, he's in this, parasympathetic system floating on his cloud. What happens to his body? Well, he's eating the grass. The enzymes in his mouth help break down the food. The stomach acids help start revving up the acids, break down the food. All these signals in the body that's very complex that we're gonna just leave it simple. There's tons of system. The liver works with the gallbladder. All these systems work together to produce hormones enzymes, 
uh, signals. It's feeding signals into the body. We're getting ready to do this. We're getting ready to do that. And all these systems work together best when we're in that parasympathetic system floating on a cloud. So back to the deer. He's sitting there, he's eating his food, his system's all nice and relaxed. And then if you're watching the animal planet, you'll see him, he perks his head up. His ears go side to side. He's discovered he's hearing something. What does he hear? Right then, his body, his system is telling him, whoa, danger, danger. His body starts to get ready to jump into the sympathetic system. Remember that's a fight flight response. So head goes up, he's checking things out, he's listening, comes back, ah, I think I'm okay. His body then jumps back into the parasympathetic system. His digestion starts to go back to normal, all is good. Well, he hears something again, head goes up, he spots in the grass something lurking. All of a sudden, he realizes it's a lion. What happens to his body? The core of the body shuts down. Stomach stops producing acid. The signals stop producing everything to do with that food. The whole system begins to go danger, danger. Let's do something different. And the center core of our body shut down. Um, there's stored energy in the body that immediately gets converted from ATP into usable energy. Bunch of scientific stuff. We're not going to go into that. Just know the body has stored energy. It converts that stored energy, sends a signal to the muscles and the legs and the arms. It sharpens the eyes. It sharpens the ears. And it allows the body to go danger, danger time to engage and get ready to fight. So in our story with the deer and the lion, the game is on. They're now doing the dance. Lion is charging, deer's running away. He's using up everything that his body has sent him to the peripheral, which is our legs and arms. It races the heart. It gets it ready so that it can go at exorbitant speed to flight or fight. So what does that mean to us? We're running around every day and we're going, I'm not running, I'm not fighting. How is this word stress and this visualization that they keep using apply to us? So let's now apply it to us as people. So let's take an example. I'm gonna paraphrase, I'm gonna use an example of one friend of mine who works at the lighthouse and I'm gonna, make up part of the story for the sample of this and use part of a real story. So Access gets her to the front door of Lighthouse. She can't go in the front door that day. She's got to go around to the back door. Shuttle or Access says, I can't take you there. This is a drop-off point. Now all of a sudden she's got to go around and she's got to traverse herself to the back door She's not really familiar with the area. So what happened to her? Her system jumped from the parasympathetic she was in, and now she's in that stress of fight flight to traverse her to the back door using those keen skills 
and using everything she has. That's the sympathetic system. It allows her to get to where she needs to go in a safe manner. But in the meantime, her breakfast she had that morning, what is it doing? It's not digesting like it's supposed to. It's just sitting there and that center core system kind of shut down. So she gets to her office. She gets into her chair. She goes, huh, all right, I'm all good. I'm safe. I made it. It's good. Her body can allow itself to move onto her cloud now. But now our boss comes in and goes, hmm, you know what? We just had this crazy thing happen. I need you to get this out and I need you to do it in a half hour. Holy crap. Okay, so now here comes a lion, the lion dancing with her in the room. And she's now trying to fight that lion, run away to get this job done. That is her lion. We think about in the morning, we get up, our bus is waiting there and we're trying to get out the door. We're all ready. We spill coffee on ourselves. Oh boy, shuttle's gonna be here in five minutes. Do I have enough time? Run upstairs, get undressed. We are now doing the dance with the lion, but the lion is now time. We're battling the clock. So let's go back to our friend who was at the lighthouse. She gets into her chair. She's sitting there at her desk. And instead of going, ah, all is good, I am safe, shifting herself into parasympathetic system, she then decides to do the dance with the lion in her head. Why didn't somebody tell me that the front door was going to be blocked? Why didn't somebody call access and tell them to drop all the people off at the back door? Why didn't somebody do this? Why this? How are we supposed to? What if this happens to somebody else? All these things that we do in our head, we are doing the dance with the lion. And that is keeping us in that fight flight response. A mom, she's sitting there, her kids are going, mom, I need help with my homework. The husband's going, honey, I got a meeting. Did you see my favorite pants? She's doing the dance with the lion, trying to answer everybody. That is the lion and that fight flight response system. So the question is, how do we know? First, let's recognize the lion in our life. How do we get ourselves into the parasympathetic system, that cloud to allow our food to digest, to allow us to relax and allow the body to do the healing thing that it's supposed to do for us. First, we have to recognize the lion. Recognize when the lion is engaging with us, whether it's in our head, whether it's external. Being in the sympathetic nervous system is not a bad thing. A lot of studies are now showing that if we allow our systems to go into these different parasympathetic to sympathetic and bounce back out, it's healthy. It keeps us strong. It keeps our immune system strong. But the key is we need to relax and get ourselves out of the dance with the lion and jump back on our cloud. So meditation, breathing, however you want to do that, that can be a whole nother class and a whole nother topic. 
but just learning what the fight fight is. And when we hear things like cortisol, dress, the damage it does to us, just remember it's a lion. It's a lion that we're fighting. The dance in our head, the physical in our environment. Every time we use that cane, when Kirk Adams today was talking about being in New York City, I resonated with that. I was in New York City when I was at Helen Keller. I went downtown with somebody that wasn't very skilled with mobility. As a deafblind person, that's not my strength. And that day, all of my devices did not charge like they were supposed to. So my stuff died and I was beholden to this person that wasn't skilled. I didn't have a lion. I had a pack of lions. And that is dangerous if we stay and constantly dance with the lion. So I don't know how much time I've used, but um, I would like to answer questions and maybe somebody has ideas if, if I didn't explain something well enough. And I apologize when I got the call to do this. I wasn't as prepared as I could have been, but thank you guys for taking this time to listen. And I hope that I was able to just share and enlighten this one little aspect of how we can help ourselves. Julie, I really loved your analogy and thank you so much for doing this. Um, I hope that we have some questions. I just wanted to say, thank you, Julie. I was surprised that you were on there. And uh, I'm so glad that you were able to talk to us about this because I don't think it matters how many times you hear this. I mean, I'm, you know, 75 years old and it still resonates in my head that, yeah, you got to really think about these things and, you know, know what's really happening with your body. And you did a marvelous job. I've been dusting, so I'm out of breath. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you make it very clear and uh, very easy to understand. So thank you. I don't really have a question though. <laughs> well, good, I'm glad, I'm glad. You know, I was sitting in class and I was, I was just flabbergasted, you know, all the, the technical scientific stuff that we were learning at the same time. And I was sitting there and I go, wow, every time I use my cane, I'm in sympathetic system. <laughs> Every time I'm doing this, when I drop something on the floor and I'm, I, I don't want my baby to get it, I'm getting in that mode. How often every day am I riding and doing that dance with the lion? And how do I really pay attention to that, which is the mindfulness practice? And I think sometimes that people forget when you listen to other, I've listened to a lot of people do some mindfulness um, uh, courses or, um, you know, little webinars or, you know, community of events and no judgment, no passing on any of them. But in my mind, I'm like, we're forgetting the key ingredient here. The key ingredient is we all in our Western society, we have monkey brain and we're always thinking, 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 thinking. We don't know naturally in our culture, we don't naturally think about mindfulness practice 
And relaxing our body and getting into the sympathetic system is about mindfully stopping and not thinking. And I hear people go, oh my gosh, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. But yes, we can. But it's just a matter of how do you do it? Every time I took something and it was like, you got to focus on your breathing, got to focus on your breathing. I didn't do well with just focusing on the breathing. But what nobody told me is it's okay if your mind drifts. Our mind, we're training our mind to get out of our head, if not just for one minute, two minutes, three minutes. If you can build yourself like an athlete and do it up to 30 minutes at a time, that's when you get really good. But let's not shoot for that 30-minute goal. Let's shoot for one minute. Sit down for one minute and get out of your monkey brain and just try to focus on something else. If you're doing the dishes, take the soap, feel the soap. What do you feel? What do you smell? What sounds do you hear? What resonates with you? What do you feel in your body? Does anything resonate with any of your other senses? That is getting out of our monkey brain for just a moment. And when we do that one moment, we're jumping into that parasympathetic riding on the cloud. And the goal is to try to do that more often than doing the dance with the lion. Janet, you may ask your question. Yes, thank you so much for this very clear explanation and the analogy. It really has helped me who think, oh, I, I'm never under stress ever. But it has helped me to think more mindfully. But what are some of your suggestions for going from the flight or fight to the rest and relax? Thank you. You're welcome, Jenna. I'm so glad I was able to help. I love being able to explain things because these are the questions I had for myself, the ones that you're asking. So for me personally, I think that the key thing to do is to start recognizing. You first got to stop and look around. This morning, for example, Last night, I got a call from my friend, Kathy Wilson, who asked me to do this because of this. In the meantime, right before she called me, I had a family emergency that I'm trying to deal with. And then this morning, I've got this other family emergency. Somebody else called and I'm, I can feel the stress in my body. I can just feel it and I'm going, okay. So I take a moment, step away, I can feel it. So let's just figure out what to do. Find something that's going to help you resonate with you. If it's breathing and focusing on your breath, because that's what most mindfulness teaches you. If that works for you, use it. Deep breaths are excellent. They're excellent to inhale good energy, exhale negative energy. So it's always good to breathe. But what if breathing distracts you more than it helps you? Well, there's lots of things you can do. You can focus if you see and you can focus on an object, a picture. 
Focus on that picture. What do you see in the picture? And don't worry about, I need to do it for one minute. I need to do it for five minutes. Don't do that to yourself. Just take that moment. Get out of that monkey brain. Get the lion out for just a moment. If you're a plant lover, touch your plant. What does your plant feel like today? What do the leaves feel like? When you're doing dishes, like I said, when you're doing your laundry, smell your dirty laundry. What does it do to you? Smell your clean laundry. What do you feel on your clothes? What do you feel? It's a getting your other senses involved and recognizing when you're in that stress mode and doing the dance with the lion, try to do something that resonates powerfully with you, whatever it is. You know, I think for uh, those of us who have dogs or cats, even um, that that's part of the role that our that our animals play. Because I know with me, um, I take my dog to play fetch most days out in the field that's nearby, and that time is probably as important to me, if not more, than it is to her. Because I am completely like in the game. <laughs> and into her and not not worried or stressed out about anything else that's going on so that's that is an excellent example thank you for bringing that up perfect because I do the same with my dog I just take time out let's play Mm -hmm. and you know when we do things that are joyful and happy to the heart that helps get us into that parasympathetic and cloud moment faster and helps calm the heart. And so they say, play with children, play with dogs, laugh, find a way to laugh. Laugh is a great moment. If you need to, and you want to turn on your favorite comedian, listen to him and laugh. And when you laugh, how do you laugh? Do you have a belly laugh? Do you have a gurgle laugh? What kind of laugh do you have? That gets us out of the dance in our head with the lion. Julie Brandon. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Well, two things, Julie. Thank you for stepping in. Pa- poor Kathy was just panicked. And when she said she got you, I wrote her back and said, phew. Anyway, thank you. You're welcome. You're really talking my language as far as mindfulness. And I've been thinking about this the last year. My mind, has, I love the name monkey brain. I've not heard that before. <laughs> but my mind goes 20,000 miles, 20,000 minutes a mile. And it's always been that way. And I've been lately thinking the one time for me that I can relax is when I pray. And during prayer, my mind is truly the most relaxed. So then I told myself, well, why don't you just pray all day? And then I wouldn't get anything else done. (laughs) And that is is a great thing. And and just so you guys, if I can interrupt, it's okay (laughs) if you're doing something and all of a sudden, oh, did I make that call? It's okay. Forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. Just say, you know, I'm going to make that call when I'm done doing what I'm doing right now. Forgive yourself. That's important. We have monkey brain. We're trained to have monkey brain. And we got to untrain the monkey brain. And we got to forgive ourselves. 
we really do. And I'm reading a hilarious book. It says that women brains, women's brains are like spaghetti and men's brains are like waffles. I like that idea. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. Hilarious. And one square at a time where us women, we have so many tangled noodles <laughs> in our yeah. brains around at once. Anyway, it's a fun book. But I, I love what you're saying. I really may talk to you more about this because it's very important. You really don't get much done or much accomplished when your mind's going a thousand miles different directions. So yeah. I really appreciate what you're sharing. Thank you. And the more you're welcome. And the more that I realized that I started practicing this, the less often I lost my phone, ah. I was able to retrieve it going, where did I set it down at? Yeah. And that's when I go, oh, it's time for me. We really, because I'm losing everything. Yeah, exactly. And I go, yep. It's really just fascinating how it all ties together. And when we can blend the best of the East with the West, it's really a fabulous thing for all of us. Well, thank you very much for sharing. You're welcome. Okay. Um, this Alco. Is, oh, no, okay. Hi. Uh, I got to tell you, I've been really lucky because I got in, introduced to centering prayer and people call it meditation. It has a lot of meanings in 1978. Oh. And if you can do it twice a day, but it takes a lot of discipline, but it's just the idea of sitting and your thoughts come and go like ships and I yeah. use I use Jesus when I get distracted and it brings me back in. Right. But, um, but I want to recommend a book. Um, it's called um, um, Finding the Heart of the, at the Center by Thomas Keating. I think that's what it's called. Grace at the Heart of the Center. It, Thomas Keating, look him up. He's passed on now, but he's delightful and he's on YouTube and he's really fun. He's got this little jolly way about him. He's a priest. And um, Anthony DeMello is another one that I would recommend on YouTube because he does talk about living in the present moment. He is now gone as well. But those two are really worth watching. And I've really gained a lot from this particular exercise. And thank you so much, Julie, for, for your welcome. comments, because I'm a fan. <laughs> and, and if you guys um, are also interested, um, John, Dr. John Cabot Zinn is known oh, as yes. the father of meditation, meditation, the father of mindfulness to the Western world. He is a microbiologist from MIT, and he did, he started the mindfulness-based stress reduction centers. And one of his best books is just wherever you, uh, there you are, wherever, no, where did, oh, shoot. Wherever you are, wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, there you are, I believe. If you guys get with me, I, I can confirm that. I apologize. That sounds right. But John Cabot Zinn, and that's spelled K-A-B as in boy, O-T dash Z as zebra, I-N-N, November, November. John Cabot Zinn. He has many books and he is well renowned, especially in the science world, as all the science backing to this mindfulness practice. Lynn, you may unmute. Hi, well, first of all, um, I've started doing more meditation lately and uh, I do five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening. And then I listen to very calming music to put me to sleep because sometimes I can't sleep <laughs> and I've got a lot of things on my mind, <laughs> like my dissertation. Yeah. So, you know, I've got a lot of stuff going on and I have, I, I've known about um, 
John Kabat-Zinn since like 2014 when I was working part-time for the uh, VA in Anchorage. And I think, you know, when you think about mindfulness and all these things that I have a lot of chronic pain. So, you know, I use, I use meditation a lot. I also use relaxing music. And if you don't know about relaxing music, you, there's plenty on YouTube that you can go to. And I find music one of the most healing, relaxing things that you can do. So. Yes. And the key takeaway, guys, is listen to everybody. What they're saying is what's good for them. So we're all unique and individual. And so we just got to find what works for us. And if breathing isn't it, don't do it. Just focus on something else. That's all, Julie. Okay. Okay. This is Kathy. This is Kathy. And I I was on the panel before. And so I just realized I didn't zip out and go back. But I just want to tell Julie, I appreciate her. Thank you so much. It was very, very good. And thank you for doing it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you guys for having here. And my website is coming up, JL Inner Vision. So look for that. If you ever want to reach out, that's I'm trying to start the business and educate. And that's where my passion is. And um, I look forward to meeting with you guys again next year. Hopefully we'll be in person. (laughs) Great. Thank you so much, Julie. Really appreciate you coming and doing this today and enjoyed it very much. Thank you. All right. Um, It's time for one more door prize. But before we do that, um, I would like to remind everyone that we are having a live auction at 6.30. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to bid on some of these items. Um, Lisa did send out a link <clears throat> to the Zoom, um, the Zoom link for, for it on October 23rd. And I believe it, the title of the email was something like WCB Live Fundraising Auction. Um, if you can't find it or don't have it, and you want to take part in the auction tonight, not just listen to it, but actually bid, uh, you will need that Zoom link. So please go ahead and email Lisa if you don't have it for some reason. And um, if you just want to listen to it, you can certainly do that on ACB Media, uh, but that won't allow you to participate. So hopefully all of you will be there to participate. Um, Okay, one more door prize. Our next door prize drawing is a mystery gift card from Pierce County Association of the Blind. Uh, I'm not sure what the amount is or what it is, but somebody's going to get something. (laughs) It is Stuart Russell from Bremerton, Washington. (laughs) Don't spend it on speakers, Stuart. (laughs) okay red you're next congratulations Stuart. all right um we are running a little bit of ahead of schedule uh alco are you here okay there we go okay (laughs) finally i found the button yeah i know it's it's pretty tricky on an iphone (laughs) well okay 
So I, um, do you mind if I turn this over to you a few minutes? I don't mind. Oh, no, I'm, I'm happy. I want to get okay. it done. Wonderful. <laughs> all right. Well, then it is all yours. Thank all you right. Very much. Well, thank you so much. I'm Alco Canfield, and I'm secretary of the Washington Council of the Blind. Well, we have three outstanding panels to share with you this afternoon. And the first one is dealing with something called Clubhouse. And Frank Cuda is facilitating this panel. Frank, would you introduce your panelists? All right. Yeah, and thanks, Tyson. You did a great job. Wow. Um, well, one might say that we're transitioning from meditation to tech here. But uh, no, no, I would just say take a couple of <laughs> and, and we're going to continue <laughs> with meditation. Because <laughs> Clubhouse, I have a, a personal adventure, an organizational asset I, is, a, is the title that I created. But we're going to learn a little about Clubhouse and what it is and how we might our organization. So my name is Frank Cuda. I'm a, I'm a past secretary of, of the WCB, and a retired engineer. And our panelists are Jeff Bishop, who is a program manager for Microsoft, and Cindy Hollis, who is ACB Membership Services Coordinator. Um, and I'm going to open with a, a paraphrase quote from Jeff here. I, I've been listening to tutorials on, on Clubhouse and God, when it comes to Clubhouse, I tell you, uh, he, there are hours and hours and hours of, of tutorials and, and trainings uh, available on uh, Clubhouse, and he does uh, some real good ones. But the quote is, we need to get smarter about using social media to extend the visibility of the WCB and ACB. Take about 30 minutes this afternoon, and we're going to look at what Clubhouse is and learn how we might most productively use it. This is not an actual tutorial on how to use the Clubhouse app, and that's how it is an app. It's an app that you install on your uh, iPhone. Um, but the um, there's an Excellent tutorial available. It's done by Jeff from ACB Community Radio Feed. That's ACB Community Radio Feed, which is one of the podcast sources. And it's called Casey Clubhouse Training. It's one he did for the Kentucky Council. It's KCB, KCB Crossroads Clubhouse Training. Great introduction to this resource. So what is Clubhouse? It's a real-time social media platform that is voice chat based. And uh, I'd like to start out by having Jeff speak a little bit about what and uh, maybe a little bit about what some of the, what he feels are the, you know, the strong resources that are available in Clubhouse. Sure. Thank you, Frank. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. I'm glad to be here and opportunity uh, to tune into the convention, and it's been great. So thank you so very much, everyone. Great presentations. You know, when we did those presentations a while ago, we did some others for the community, 
uh, around Clubhouse. Uh, Clubhouse is a, as Frank said, is an audio-based uh, social media or social platform. And um, you know, to to say that it's just audio chat is a, a bit incorrect now, as as the platform is continuously. Uh, evolving, but you can think of it really as its center post based. Um, it's it's extremely popular in the in the blindness community, and frankly, I would say it's actually very popular in media circles as, as as well. There's literally tens of thousands of people there on the platform, twenty four hours a day. Mm. Uh, some of us have been awake at two in the morning and go up there and take a look, and there's plenty of people chatting away. Um, People who, who hold just casual conversations uh, with just friends and family. There's uh, actual groups and, and, and clubs and organizations that with up to 10,000 people uh, within Clubhouse. There's uh, ways of so that they appear in a Clubhouse calendar and you can promote them across Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, and all the different platforms that you might want to uh, utilize to do that. It's just a really great platform to to utilize, and ACB has embraced it significantly. I know that Cindy um, and others have have really embraced it for a lot of the community events. Crafters um, as part of the community has has embraced it significantly. Schedule is read out every day uh, on Clubhouse as well as on Zoom now. Um, so really fun it's it's a it's another way of engaging your user base and and staying i know wcb relies on that right now for doing a lot of this either over zoom or other solutions uh and i know that clubhouse does have a, a hurdle to overcome in reference to the technology app it's not available over the phone but it is something that you should consider as part of special interest affiliates across the state that you might want to utilize, especially if you want to deliver a webinar format that might even increase your audience outside of the state itself uh, for fundraising and all kinds of things, because that's another thing that Clubhouse offers. Is really important. It's, it's so user-friendly and open. And, and conducive to to chatting. And uh, could you go ahead and make some open talk, talk about that? Of course. Hi, everybody. Oh. Um, I am delighted to be here. And it is something I was not thrilled about getting involved with, just something else to learn. That's what I thought. <laughs> it all. And amazing and a part of my everyday life since early March. So things I think are great about it is that you can decide to open up a room on the fly. Anybody can. You don't have to be an organized membership organization or a business. And you can, as Jeff said, schedule an event, but um, it's not anymore when it started it was just for ios android users now can get on the app there is another uh, app for the computer called club deck that many people come 
Clubhouse through that as well. There are chat, there's a chat feature now. So when you're in Clubhouse, you can somebody a private message. And they have just started making people to listen to music because there are quite a few on Clubhouse. Mm. And uh, so music is often played there. Um, and let's see, what else? It's, it is very similar to webinar. So just like here in this room, there are some of us that are on quote unquote stage. Uh, as we got a webinar invitation to be a panelist, uh, the, in Clubhouse, moderators or you are given uh, the privilege of either at the setting up of the room and you come in on stage or you're in the audience and you raise your hand and then a moderator allows you to come on stage. The difference, uh, there are some differences, but they're pretty minimal. Uh, you come on stage unmuted. Uh, so you'd need to mute yourself. And, uh, but we are using it in the community. We started in, like I said, early March. Did not know how we were going to connect Clubhouse with community. But community had already grown so big and it was a year old. We weren't going to dump what we'd already worked on, right? So what we saw was this opportunity to reach a new audience and uh, by we have new people come in they see us in the hall they follow any blind organizations or blindness topics they likely then would see us way and uh, they can come in because an open room meaning you don't have to be a club member you don't have to be somebody I follow, organizer, uh, that would be a social room if I wanted it just to be people I follow. But if it's an open room, anybody could come in. We do that with Clubhouse in the morning. And for over six months, we've been doing that every day, whether it's a holiday or not, at 9 a.m. Eastern. And yes, many people join us at 6 a.m. your time. And uh, so we just started a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago, now opening it up to, well, so we join those two rooms together and we go over the schedule each morning and give people an opportunity to say hi and interact. And it's not just one-way communication. People actually get to talk and we laugh and it's, it really is nice. We do a couple of other things we, uh, where people can come on stage and we are listening. Basically, we're piping in karaoke, what we do on Zoom. We're kind of piping it into Clubhouse and everyone in the room in Clubhouse then can hear the music. But we can also talk to each other. It's almost like we're at, at the bar or wherever you might go for karaoke sitting around a table talking to each other it's pretty cool uh, and we will be bringing more events like that into clubhouse as we get more people with the ability to help us 
doing the connecting of the two. So um, I think the only other thing I just want to say is that it really is easy. Individuals can, you know, some people have done pretty organized things like the crafters. Um, I have a club I created, haven't done anything with it yet, but I just early on, I was like, I really want to do something motivational. So I started Embrace, Engage, Empower. Uh, many people have heard me talk about those three very important uh, elements. And uh, But I think it's way bigger. Hopefully I will do something with that club, but it's mine. Nobody can take it because I claimed it. <laughs> so uh, very, very easy. And oh, there's no cost to your chapter or your affiliate to um, take. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And Jeff, would you like to say more about how the the communications available in Clubhouse translates into organizational strength. Um, you know, really, this is it's not just Clubhouse, though. I think that that the the power of reaching out in multiple ways and using um, social media, whether that be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, um, AC, the AC, um, whatever the tool of, of choice that you're choosing to use is. Um, you, you know, it's just another vehicle to get the word out. The, the thing about Clubhouse, though, is, is that Clubhouse gives you tools to reach out to those with whom you follow. So if you are starting to attend a specific event, you can, what we call, ping people into a specific room. Um, people can get notified of where you are going in, in Clubhouse so that, that they might same events that you're that you're doing, um, events that you schedule on the platform appear on the front page of your Clubhouse app. Um, especially if you're following, say, the ACB Club, for example, then those things will appear um, on the front Clubhouse. You get immediate visibility. And by the way, anyone is uh, more than happy to schedule events as part of the ACB Club. You just need to be a member of it to be able to do that then you can add events to the calendar and, and, and actually schedule events uh, to get more members. We've, we've got, how many members do we have right now, Cindy? Yeah, we you have know? close to 1,200. 1,200 So that'd right be 1,200 right? yeah. people yep, yeah. that would, would get to see what you wanted to put together, you know, whatever That's you right. wanted to put. Chime in really quick. I One of the strengths, I think, is that Anything that we do as an organization is about connection and inner circle of our uh, chapters uh, or our statewide affiliate. It's it's the committees that um, we have, like the people that we know. And so it gives us an opportunity to meet one-on-one -on -one or five of us or whatever it might be, could be 20. Uh, and you have a, a cordial conversation. You could discuss something, planning, whatever. So you could do something like that. But as was mentioned before, an event that you would reach people not only 
all over the world. Um, in the mornings, we have people come in from Europe, um, from India and uh, Finland and, and where they're going to show up from. And, you know, under normal circumstances and just using a conference call, unless you unless you know how to reach those people, they don't have the credentials. But in Clubhouse, if you make it an open event, you are opening it based on your sign for all the world to see. <laughs> Each is huge, much bigger than you can in the form that we're using right now in Zoom. So, and that's a real, of course, the community um services and and couple of years is opened up the uh, the audience and invited people from the wider public and it's probably one of the greatest things that's happened to the national organization in in you know, the last 10 or 20 years uh this communications is a tremendously powerful t- this is a this is a this is a one way to communications, and I've, I've been thinking about a, a local application to my local chapter. Strength of my local chapter is that we chat constantly. Chatting is is really really strong. It, it, but but you know we we have social things all through the month. We have a card group. We have a group um we but we're we get together and we chat face to face but with the pandemic concerns and and with ability of advanced age uh you know makes those face-to-face chatting become more difficult and a and can continue those kinds of coordinations uh and promote them even through some of the most difficult situations. It's a very powerful tool. You know, uh, Frank, there was, and I, I wish I could speak to even the website and the game, and I don't remember, but I don't think it matters. There's based games that people can play online, and what they end up doing is as they're playing with somebody elsewhere, uh, there's a chat, and they can text each other but we played there was about five of us opened a clubhouse room we played the game online texting each other we were in the room together and we were able to verbally talk to each other while we were playing the game on the computer it was an amazing experience um kind of like there was no different than if we were in person, other than, you know, we couldn't touch each other. We couldn't hug, right? You, you know, you don't get that. But, but um, all that interaction, immediate, uh, was right there. Tone of voice, laughter, all of it. I wanted to mention one other thing, too. And, and we should, uh, at least to call it out, uh, people are really starting to also pick up on Twitter spaces. 
Twitter Spaces is a, is a platform similar to Clubhouse, although it's a little bit different in that it's really meant more for a webinar type approach, meaning that you have a panel of people who are presenting to an audience. Yes, you can be brought up from the audience just like you can in, in Clubhouse, but it's really more meant for a webinar type um, uh, strategic event. And it, it might be useful for things like conventions or, or, or other things. Other, or other things. The, the thing that's important about Twitter Spaces is that it it actually has an even larger reach than, say, Clubhouse does because you've got people could promote the Twitter Space that's happening to literally, you know, 10, 20,000 people. Uh, for example, ACB National can retweet something and it will, you know, go to literally thousands and thousands of people pretty instantly. Of, to be able to get notice and they can click right into your event. So again, it's another tool. It's another option. All of them should be explored. And if people want to learn more, we can definitely do some uh, events throughout the and uh, Twitter spaces and all kinds of things. So in that uh, vein, I'm wondering if anybody has any questions for the panelists. Um, my name's Cassandra and I have a question on how does this differ from a uh, Discord or Slack? Or is it pretty much this on the same concept? Uh, well, let's see. So uh, Discord, you have to be invited to a specific server, generally, mm -hmm. or at least have the link right. to it. Um, uh, that That's pretty much true of TeamTalk and, and all these other different types of uh, chat-type services. Clubhouse is... Uh, if, if you're in Clubhouse and, there, and a room is open, you can jump into a room. You don't even have to be invited. You can just simply go there and, and listen. Uh, so that's the, that's the difference really here. Is okay. It's more open. It's a more open platform than these others. Not to say that these others are not. It's just right. that they, they have a little bit of a barrier to entry. Okay. Well, isn't one difference uh, that you, you specify your interest areas when you join and then you're, you find the kind of open. True. That is, and you, that is true. And you, you walk down your hallway, you find things that, um, and people that you already know yeah. and talking about <laughs> things that you want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's incredible. It, it, it's truly a social platform, meaning that it's based on who you follow and who follows you. And so a lot of the rooms and things that, that are bubbled up to you are based on the al algorithm that it uses to match you up to rooms where people who you know are chatting. So again, it, the gate and the other does not. It's more open. Perfect. Thank you. You're more than welcome. Do we have any other questions? Yes, Nathan, Nathan is unmuted now. Go ahead, Nathan. I don't, I don't know what happened, but I wasn't able to unmute for some reason. Um, so I went and tried out Clubhouse and got totally confused. So what makes it user-friendly and easy? Because I got very confused about choosing topics and stuff. It, I was totally discouraged. So give me well, some reason to why to try to it that. again. Yeah. Because I also felt that way at first, Nathan, and I ditched the whole thing about choosing topics. I've never choose, chosen them. I almost said choosed. I've never chosen them. Um, and so what I did is I found a few people uh, that I knew that were on, started following them. And then I looked to see who, who they were following. And if I knew them, then I started following them. And the more people I followed, the more people followed me. 
and and it just spiraled. So, you know, as um, and there's a tab at the top that says activities, and when anybody follows you, it is listed there, and you can then follow them back. And that really is, um, it's it really is all about uh, what I see. It is all about who you follow. Mm. Okay. So it's a combination. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. Next we have Holly. There. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Oh, thank goodness. I'm using my iPhone, which I don't normally use very much because Jim is interested in this too. Um, In the beginning, when we were signing up, we were using the uh, Lady A, and she wasn't doing her job very well. Would you mind telling me what the name of that training that you were talking about is so that I can learn more? Because I just, it's the same problem I have is with Facebook. I get co- totally confused, and maybe so if I had somebody train me, before, I would be better. Before uh, Frank gives you the all the long stuff, I'm going to suggest you go to acbmedia.org. Uh-huh. In the search, type in Clubhouse. Thing that is available as a podcast will come up. Oh wow! And there's oh. lots, and there are plenty. <laughs> so okay, great. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. But the thing was, I looked. I've read a lot of them in the last week. Listened to a lot of them, and this KCB Crossroads Clubhouse training was the best thing I saw. There's and about eight hours out, of content. Yeah, it'll come up. Mm-hmm. You're doing a great job, Allison. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Is that it? Or are uh, we, before we do the next exciting panel, um, I think we need a door prize. Okay. We do have one more raise. One more hand. question. You want to okay. take it? Uh huh. Yeah, we'll okay. Take it. One is, more. That's it. Okay. Lynn, you can unmute, Lynn. Hello. Well, uh, is, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Okay, well, I am definitely a clubhouse fan. I go to all sorts of rooms, um, meditation, sound healing, you name it, um, disability rooms. I go to tons of them, and um, I, I love it. I love it. And, I, and of course, I, I joined in March, so it was when somebody had to um, nominate me, so I, I did it that way. And I did find it very confusing in the beginning, but once I got the hang of it, you know, now I get 4,000 Clubhouse notifications. I'm thinking of turning them off because I get so many at once and stuff like that. But, you know, that that's me. I'm kind of a, you know, crazy person. <laughs> but uh, it's really fun. I really enjoy it. And um, and I found oh, that's where I do a lot of meditation rooms too. So, you know, I think that um, Clubhouse can be a vehicle for anything you want. They have Christian rooms. They have Jewish rooms. They have all sorts of things that people can go to if they're interested in whatever topic you want. Vegan rooms, uh, people who do the vaccine, people who don't do the vaccine. I mean, you know, tons of rooms. It's just a, a cornucopia of all sorts of stuff of people all over the world. So, thank you, Lynn. Appreciate so, it. So, Alco, I yes. think we're out of time yet. Uh, we yeah. had a few more things to talk about. Oh, did you have more? Well, it's twenty till right now, so you have five minutes. And we were we right. started we started early. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just trying to. So there was just one other thing I'd like to cover, and that is security. There's, with that, with all social media, you know, you have the security concerns, and and we talk about following people and and sharing your contacts and all of that. But the one really important aspect of Clubhouse is the trust 
and uh, control uh, the uh, basically room management is really important and uh, the person a person on stage can block uh, if you know if there's any any indication of any of anything amiss uh, a person on stage can just block and that person is basically out of the room and there, you don't have to worry about uh, oh I don't know uh, you always have to be concerned about security, but I feel I, there's there's a strong trust component involved in the way this platform is run. Do you want to say anything about that, Jeff? Well, I, I think it just goes without saying here that whatever social platform you're on, you have to you have to be somewhat guarded, and um, the the Clubhouse platform gives you plenty of tools to be able to do that whether you have an open room or what they call a social room, meaning that you only allow people with whom you follow uh, to be able to join the room itself, or you can do private rooms where nobody actually even sees that you're on. So there's a number of ways to do it. You always should have your guard up. At, I mean, whether you're on Facebook or, or wherever you're at, um, that goes without saying. So th- those rules apply everywhere. Uh, it's, you know, you, you can make things as safe as you need them to be for yourself. And you just need to make sure that you're advocating for yourself. That's the most important thing, regardless, regardless if it's uh, clubhouse, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the case may be. All right. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Cindy. Uh... Oh, I think we're going to do the door prize. I'm sorry, Frank. I didn't mean to, you know, short change you there. So I'm glad you got it in. <laughs> Okay, I don't know who is doing the door prizes here, but uh, this is Allison, your host. I see a raised hand. Uh, one of our panelists, Julie Brandon, has her hand raised. Can you hear me? As we're done, so I'll talk fast. I'm. Honestly, say, Jeff, um, you offered training, and we're thinking of doing a lot of WCB training. So we'll be in touch. That sounds great. Thank you. Uh-huh.